You're now listening to the Something Good Podcast Network. Please press any key to continue. A kiss, as defined by Dan Webster, is something pleasing, a caress, a gentle touch. But there's another kiss that isn't in Webster's. Hey world, we're kids! Some critics say they don't make music, they just make noise. Yeah, kiss! Kiss implies the extreme in the theatrics on stage, utilizing fire and smoke and bizarre costumes and the ever-consistent, constant concealment of their true identities. Speaking of which, Kiss is going to have its own comic book soon. Take Kiss with you. It's fun. Show your friends and be the first. Now. No! Oh my God! No time to turn! Welcome once again to No Time to Turn, a Kiss Nerd Podcast. Nerd. And this will be a very nerd centric episode. Well, We're getting very nerdy. As if the others have Right. Not <laughs> well, uh, well, there's a lot of minutiae in this one, much like the is. tribute album episode. As always, I'm with Cap and Alex from the Something Good Network. Yo, yo. What's up? I'm Russ. I'm your host, I guess. Yes. I'm uncomfortable with, that, with host, that. What about host with the most? I'm even more uncomfortable <laughs> with that. Um, the ringleader. The, the whatever. The ringleader of the psycho circus. Oh, God. The hottest podcast host in the world. Yeah. yeah Russ. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> you wanted the best. <laughs> well, you got Russ instead. <laughs> Join the Russ Army. Our membership is only $5 a year. <laughs> what all do you get with that? Yeah, really. <laughs> Thanks, y'all. <laughs> you get an online shout out. Yay! I'll I'll say your name at the Thanks. end of the episode. <laughs> Somewhere there's a kiss lawyer going. Nope, nope, nope. Can't do that. Nope. Ah, <laughs> oh, shit. Uh, we are, of course, you know, moving through the history of Kiss album by album, year by year. Cycle by cycle. Yeah, in a very uh, non-scientific and unorthodox way, just commenting on our opinions as to what was going on, when, where, how, and why. And then we're, we're into the year 1995, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of interesting stuff happening, uh, as we've talked about on the previous episode. Uh, Larry Mazur, their business manager i guess or managed creative manager i guess is really what he was i think I, i'm still uncertain is Larry is jesse hilson still the manager here i think by this point kiss was kind of self-managing uh, again without being well, direct we, well larry mazer quits over yeah. the their their self-tribute mm-hmm. which yeah. still rightly so weird. yeah <laughs> so i guess they're kind of self-managing here but and um, honestly it feels like even though they've only kind of mentioned Tommy playing a role as like media guy, it really does feel like at this point that Thayer is kind of getting a little bit more in the forefront of operations. Yeah. Especially during this time period, it feels like Thayer has a lot more to do with orchestrating. He's kind of in the forefront of these conventions. And you see uh, interviews with Gene where he talks about getting uh, Tommy out of black and blue, saying mm-hmm. like how Tommy's kind of moved on from doing music and but still wants to be involved in the biz. And the, and the biggest quote they use from them uh, about Tommy is they're like, you know, Tommy's a team player. He's great. He does anything, you know, we need him to do you know he'll he'll put together a book or you know wash our windows and man my windows are clean <laughs> that's a shitty thing to say yeah that is paraphrasing but there there's they, they, they've, they've kind of like they've always can... they've used a quote and wrapped it up with he'll do anything from put the do this that and the other and wash windows and 
Man, my windows look great. Man, he's a great Aaron boy, right? Hey, you know who got the last laugh, though? That true. Who he earned it <laughs> in a lot of ways. You know, Alice Cooper used to have a guy he called Renfield, and I forget what the guy's name really was. Was that like his like little assistant or and something like that? It was like a that? guy that was an, he was a big, huge fan, and he had archived everything, and I guess they kind of gave him kind of a low-level job to yeah. to manage that to some degree. But um, and That's kind of what Tommy's doing at this point. Well, but as a fan, Ren, Ren, Renfield, sadly – was found in a dumpster with a bullet in his head. Oh, wow. Self, self-inflicted. <laughs> Oof. That's yeah, kind of a sad story. But, you know, that's that's the fate for a lot of nerds, and we are... Nerds. We are nerds. Yeah. <laughs> so let's, Tommy let's was, too. to one of the fallen <laughs> brothers. And Tommy was probably a kiss nerd, too. Mm-hmm. I'm sure right now the last thing Tommy Thayer will ever want to do when he's done is hear another kiss song. Right. <laughs> Which, I mean, you know. but Although, uh, Gibson has just released a new app where you can like learn to play guitar by famous guitarists. And Tommy is teaching you how to play classic kiss solos like Cold Gin and Detroit Rock City. Well, he, he was good for him. <laughs> He had he had to he had to do that at another point a year later at we, this point we'll we will discuss in another episode which I found um, and that's the reason I brought it up because it felt kind of weird yeah, and poetic yeah <laughs> right <laughs> meanwhile there's a curious phenomenon that has been occurring probably since the late 80s up into this point which is the rise of the Kiss fan convention yes a, very, a kind of an interesting concept because uh, at this point in time uh, Comic Con was starting to pick up steam because there was small comic conventions called Comic Con that was happening in the mid uh, the late 60s early 70s only within New York and it was basically like um, an old VW place would just get rented out and there'd be like four or five comic creators in there and like maybe 200 people throughout the day would show up and that was Comic Con right. and by this point, you know, so comic conventions were becoming a lot more prevalent, but all of a sudden, Kiss gets conventions. Well, How many other bands warranted a convention? I was at this about point? to like ask maybe that. the Beatles or like Elvis, Elvis with Graceland. Elvis, the Beatles. Cons are very commonplace now mm-hmm. of all various types. Any niche you can I, think of, you know. And I don't. I mean, I my my kids will pop up and go, "We're going to such and such." And I'm like, "What's that?" Well, it's for this. And I'm like, mm-hmm, "Huh?" Yeah. Heroes Con, Horror Cons, there's, there's Pokemon, cons. Pokemon, there's Pokemon Cons, there's there's anime cons, mm-hmm. there's anime specific cons, mm-hmm. it's just like, like specific shows or specific eras yeah, or creators. Like, yeah, and so, but back in this time, it wasn't common at all. No, and. And so that makes the KISS fan convention more of an anomalous kind of occurrence. Uh, these would feature just like what you would expect. It's a, kind of a, a, a marketplace for collectors to buy, sell, and trade their shit. Mm-hmm. Classic merch. You know, it was very much centered on the the classic makeup era of KISS and, more so than anything. And all the toys and minutiae that came with that yeah. product. And, and the really fun part about it is members that were no longer part of KISS were getting reached out to and actually showing up. Like the elusive Vinnie Vincent showed up to a few of the fan oh, conventions. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And because that, it was a little controversial because he put on the makeup. Yeah, yeah. So he shows up, does that, and then like Bill Coin was real famous for just showing up. He like he wouldn't be part of like a roster or anything. He, he Bill would just, would just show up. Bill would just show up, but he would also show up with a van 
and sell shit. Yeah. yeah. Well, that, hey, he had a warehouse. <laughs> so, yeah, that, he, so, I mean, but this, but that plays into something what, well, important that happens there. So, Bill LaCoin is starting to kind of siphon off his classic Kiss stuff to the nerds that are in the know that'll meet him at the hotel and he'll have like the spread out and be like, I got some gold records. See, I when you say got, that, I think like of he's the, a drug dealer. Yeah, I think. Of the, have you ever seen the movie Taxi Driver, where the, yeah. where the guy's selling him the guns in the hotel room? He's like, "That's a really good gun. That's a good gun. You'll like that gun." So but, but I can I see Bill. I can see Bill going, going. Yeah, that's a really good boot. That's the boot he wore, and you know, oh, yeah, that's a good necklace. And, and that's, of course, that's the necklace that Paul wore. These, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the thing is, is from all accounts, because I've heard like three or four different stories of like collectors that actually bought stuff off Bill. That's kind of the vibe it had because Bill knew. Well, it was important. Of course. It's like he understood at that point. He's so he he made it very I argue that Bill always understood the importance of what they had done and why it was special more so than anybody else. Oh yes. Uh let's you can even let we could even do a little thought exercise here Larry Mazer versus Bill Coin in in terms of creative management. And what do you think Bill Coin would have done with a non-makeup kiss? Ooh. Hmm, good question. <laughs> Honestly, I, mean, I don't man, want to spend a lot of time no, on no, this. Let's but, not, but, you know. but my first instinct would have been Bill would have never allowed it. Yeah. That's yeah. my immediate well, first instinct. Of course, of course. But, but if we want to take that part off the table of just, okay, let's say they caught Bill on a good day. He, he got the right cut from his dealer. And he's like, yeah, fuck it. Take the makeup off. I don't give a shit. If that happened, honestly, I feel like he would have tried to make them more commercial. If that makes sense, he's like, okay, well, if well, we're gonna they, we're going to take the makeup off, we need to really build you guys up as the dream team band. Yeah, I feel like he would have really leaned in with he would have stylized them a little better. He would have had a better eye for the fashion. They would have still been flamboyant, but it wouldn't have been so. It wouldn't have been asylum. No, it would not have been asylum. So I feel like just an overall better creative direction, maybe a more cohesive direction. And I can see him hooking up with various guys like Bob Rock or some shit like that. And, and to a point, you know, we talk about these conventions. They had Kiss tribute bands playing at yeah. them. Uh, to my knowledge, there's never been any tribute act dedicated to the non-makeup era using, say, the Asylum costumes. Well, because because what would have <laughs> been no the point? Of, there, was no, no. there was no nostalgia for that I at know, that point. I know, and they're never really... Because they, they could still go see Kiss Live and hear Tears Are Falling. You know, why would they want a tribute band to that? But, you know, they want to see some guys, you know, spitting up some $2, right, you know, right. clown makeup blood. Right. Uh, we talk about, you know, you talk about there's, there's a market for this... Kiss costume and you know uh, merchandise and all this stuff, but and if, it plays into even the tribute on, album because there's so many people starting to embrace this old era. Yeah, it's and like I said, it's it's a lot of what's the salvage, the saving grace for for Kiss to kind of chug through this grunge movement in the '90s because a lot of the grunge, so-called grunge movement or whatever alternative movement that's rising all grew up through this and they had nostalgia and appreciation for this. And you've also got musicians like Marilyn Manson wearing face paint and you know, you may have picked that up from Alice Cooper and ever, and other people and stuff like that. But people think kiss to an extent when the, they see the that theatricality too. and a, a small thought uh, thing too, that it won't take nearly as long is were kiss ahead of the time by two years with the rise to it video or a couple years rather with the rise to it video because it feels like they felt 
the nostalgia was going to come, or Larry rather. Larry Mazur. Larry, Larry felt the nostalgia was about to come, but they did it, and we already covered the fact that it really didn't pop. It didn't they do much. They were reluctant to do the rise to it thing. But now, fast forward three to four years. And there's this big groundswell of people really appreciating the makeup era. So did they just shoot that load a little too early? I don't know. I don't uh, We can discuss that as we get into the reunion. But um, But again, I just thought that was interesting. It's interesting. interesting Well, this ties in. We talk about, again, there's people, Bill, and perhaps other people that have got access to the old costumes and stuff this stuff has been kind of warehoused and forgotten yeah because also during this time period i forget if it was between i remembered seeing it when we were doing the research but then i didn't like jot it down and it didn't really come up when we were doing the episode but sometime between the crazy nights era and revenge sometime between that era their old warehouse just stopped getting paid for huh that's the that story. doesn't surprise me we talked about they were they were strapped for cash uh-huh. They just quit paying on the warehouse, and so it defaulted. That, so all of a sudden, a lot of this old memorabilia, costumes, guitars, small stage up, props, yeah. it just it got let go in an auction. And like any of those massive sale, okay, do you want to buy this storage locker sale? And oh, you think that so somebody probably bought it not realizing what was inside it, and then... And just started shuffling it out. Well, hmm. And then collectors started collecting it up. Because and then a few years later, these fan conventions pop up, and you've always got the one or two people that set up the really nice big booth. And this was always the big pulling point for these fan conventions: is if a member wasn't showing up, they could usually get that baller one or two big collector that shows up, and he's like, "Look, I've got all of Ace's old guitars and some of his costume pieces." And some other guy shows up, like, "Look, I've got Gene's boot." Yeah. So it's like, where are they getting this from? That's where it was coming from, was these warehouses that were just getting defaulted on, and all of a sudden, things started sprinkling out. Now, is this uh, when the internet's starting to become a thing, and people are like reaching out to each other that way? Yeah. A little bit. And uh, the bootleg is community still, is still very large. It's more of a bootleg community. Okay. Um, on July 17th, 1994, there's a KissCon in Detroit. And at this one, there was a most unusual occurrence. <laughs> there's a there's someone with a little kiss museum featuring original stuff, costumes, and, and stuff. it was one of the larger ones. Like they had like two or three different eras. Do you have the of name costumes. of the guy who it was? Um, uh, we'll just call him Bob Munson. Uh, that was that. <laughs> that's the that's his last name. There there seems to be when I was lo- doing research on this, there seems to be a little bit of family things that kind of went sour with it so it, it was the munson family that was involved whoever with it. these guys are yes. okay well you know that's neither here nor there we're not throwing any not at all and that's why i was saying just basic info on that uh but at this convention a very surprise appearance occurs when gene and paul show up mm-hmm only it wasn't the hobnob with the fans. It was to reclaim what they claimed was stolen, stolen. Mm. costumes. They're flanked with federal agents and lawyers. And this footage is on YouTube. Uh, the title of it is Kiss Gene and Paul uh, Raid Kiss Convention 94. And it's funny as hell. When you watch the video, when they start making their way in, you hear someone in the very back go, holy shit, that's Gene. <laughs> <laughs> This is confusing to me. Even now, I get if they felt like the stuff was stolen, and and that's that's one issue. 
But to go to this convention yourself, that really positions you as the bad guy. Because people are always going to look at this, you know, as, you know, they're coming in and just arbitrarily taking shit from somebody else. And you don't know what the story is on that. And we don't Mm -hmm. know who's right, wrong, or whoever. Apparently, they go to court with this and they win. So, obviously, the legal... uh, precedent was in their favor yeah yeah you don't hear that in interviews about this time period <laughs> they but, gloss over that but it quickly. still looks really shitty on their part to do it and, and you know why it especially looks shitty it's very out of character because yeah. I, I was talking with someone the other day um there's a there's an artist i follow on instagram called um butcher billy and he does really cool mashups of pop culture uh, different properties. So like he does a lot of David Bowie and star Wars mashups because mm-hmm. Starman and things like that. Right. So, and she was asking, she's like, you know, what about copyrights? So I was like, well, you know, as long as they're modifying it and changing it up some, you know, that they really can't do much. I said, and bands get really touchy on. I said, but kiss, I said, they're actually really cool about it. They, they support tribute acts. You know, they want tribute songs. So, when you look at Kiss's character, they really don't put their thumb down too hard on the fans. And you even hear... So when something like this happens, it's very... Not shocking, but it definitely puts a different tone in place because you just don't see that from well, them. The question is, could this have been handled any differently or any better? It could have been handled a lot better, I feel. Because Gene and Paul did not have to be there. It's the same reason why you have bodyguards. It's not because the artist can't defend themselves. It's not because they don't feel protected. But they are the bad guys if they keep walking past fans going, no, 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 stop, stop. Oh, yeah, yeah. If you've got the Somebody bodyguard. Else going, no, 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 stop, stop. It's it like, keeps their bodyguard was an asshole. Exactly, right. and it right. keeps the image. So, so if someone, they didn't, they... <laughs> so if they had just sent in their own team it, along with police, because they had police escorts, so right. apparently they had permission to do it. Yeah. If they had just sent some muscle in their place and then showed up to address it, the, because they showed up to address the audience mm-hmm. also. So if that had happened and then they show up and address the audience, that even would have felt a little different than seeing both Gene and Paul going in, literally ripping their own stuff off this table. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really shitty look for them here. Especially when you hear Gene tell, talk about it when he says things like, uh, uh, this was something special when we saw these conventions pop up. You know, that made us feel, you know, special and yada 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 but then they go and do this and then well in the wake of this they also do an interesting thing they copyright the term kiss con or kiss convention kiss convention or but it's not just kiss convention they copyright they they do like a half dozen permutations of the term kiss fan fest kiss whatever but i think they the only one they didn't grab was expo because you keep seeing kiss expo yeah show maybe ups. maybe i don't i don't know exactly I, I saw but there's you know it's it, you can find this stuff online i'm it's not a big deal to me but it, i just think it's kind of a shitty play it's like you don't get to sit there and like they do and the, they mentioned this in the kiss my ass home video which you know we referenced in the last episode you don't get to sit there and jerk off in public going, look at what we got, and then turn around and try to shut it all down. It yeah. doesn't make any sense unless you have something in your in mind. Um, and again, the only reason we even bring that up is because it does feel so out of character. Because Gene and Paul have always been so good to fans. And even Gene was kind of calling out Paul during this time period, or kind of the next time period when they start recording a Carnival of Souls. 
on the Kissology video, there's the behind the scenes of them like making the record. And Jesus straight up calling Paul, he's just like, yeah, that the prick tour is when you're acting like a prick toward all the fans. <laughs> <laughs> you know, shit like that. So, you know, they're very aware of how they treat their fan base. And it's just a very odd look. I think it's one of those where it's like, oh, if anybody's going to make money off of a kiss it's going to be us. It's going to be <laughs> us. <laughs> well, seeing the opportunity to exploit this to their own advantage, they decide to curate their own official convention. But before all of this happens, there's still stuff that they're taking care of, kind of loose ends. And this this does feel very much like a very kind of mismanaged or self-managed kind of just shooting in the dark kind of maneuvers that they're doing here because they don't tour at all in 1994. And instead they play a handful of one-off dates and then head off to do a short tour of South America in the late summer. And there's nothing particularly notable other than the increased, their set list has increased to as much as 22 songs. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and very classic era heavy. It say. is very classic era. There's usually no more than four non-makeup era songs in the set. Very um, self-aware now. Three of these dates are part of a festival series called Monsters of Rock, and I'm unsure if they are in any way related to the European counterpart, but um, these are the bigger shows of the yeah. of the tour that they and draw Monster- over 25,000 people at these Monsters of Rock shows. But they only draw about an average of 5,000 people on their own, yep. which is a far cry from the 1982 San Remo shows or wherever it was. The- yeah. And those Monsters of Rock shows are actually on YouTube. Yeah, I watched a little bit of it the other day. They also played... <laughs> I don't know why I find this stuff funny, but I just do. They played the Arizona State Fair. <laughs> I mean, I agree, man. Anytime you see a big band playing something like a fair or an amusement park, well, it, it is a it's little. It's a little more common now. I'll see Cheap Trick get on fair bills every now and then. I saw you know, Cheap Trick at a fair. There you bill. go. <laughs> <laughs> hey, got to get that paycheck. <laughs> but it's still something about these bands playing the state fair does seem a little cheap. Mm-hmm. And it looks Jones like did it. it well, you know, it's Cheap Trick does it. Graham Funk. 38 special. (laughs) But you kind of sense that you have lessened yourself in stature when you do this. They're using, interestingly enough, kind of a recycled version of the animalized stage. This is the stage they also will take with them. They they do uh, tours in the winter of 1995 in Japan and Australia. This is a return in Australia the first time in Uh, 15 years. Is it 94? I think it's winter. Are you sure it's not winter of 95? Oh, I, th- I thought we were still just going chronological. We were still in 94 at that point. I thought that the Japan and Australia is early 95. It is. Okay, that's what I'm saying. Okay, yeah. Um, let's see. Oh, it's interesting. That's tour that they do. Uh, now they've they've increased to six non-makeup era songs, but mm-hmm. the opening song is King of the Nighttime World, which is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I like those clips because it, it works really well because you get the hottest band in the world. Kiss. Yeah, yeah. I always thought that was a great opening song. Mm-hmm. I love that song. Well, because it, it works really cool. It's got good dynamics. It starts with, you know, the drum roll with everyone playing the riff mm-hmm. and then it eventually just cuts down to one guitar and drums. And then everyone kicks back in for the chorus again. So it's just a really good dynamic song. There's no attendance uh, attendance figures that I can find for these shows, but from what I could tell, they did pretty well, albeit in smaller venues. Um, 
So I, I, I know I saw numbers like they played like certain places in Japan to like 2,000 people. Right. But that was the, the hall in Japan. And that's not super uncommon apparently over there. I guess the bigger areas are going to be like Tokyo. Right, and right. Even if they played a smaller hall, they could probably play multiple nights. Now, who's opening for them on these on these uh, runs? Uh, I do not have any information on that. I'm um, se- I'm seeing some notes in here, and they're seeing like you know other acts, none. Yeah. Huh. So All I'm right. seeing kind of I'm seeing a few of those. Uh, there's some. It was I think there's a band in Australia. It was like a local, some sort of local or Australian band that played the shows there. I'm not sure because the shows in Australia included five appearances. At KISS conventions. Oh. And this is why we're kind of moving this mm-hmm. way. And these all proved to be quite successful, which, of course, pays the, paves the way for a U.S. convention tour. Right. I don't know. I'm From what I understand and from what I gather, this was all worked in conjunction with KISS that this I don't know that it was necessarily their idea. This wasn't but, the official Kiss convention, but they yet. were heavily involved with it, Mm-mm. and and they brought in uh, Tommy and a guy named Tim Rosner to help orchestrate it and put it together. And I guess they flew in the all their now which they have possession of their memorabilia, full costumes, full everything. I want to yep. say Gene was pretty involved with it too. At least he'll tell you he was. Um, yeah, this does honestly feel like the era that Gene started kind of mentally coming back more. It felt like Gene was a lot more involved. I think Gene's always era. been more plugged into the original concept of Kiss as a theatrical act. That's mm-hmm. what gets him off more so than just being a rock band. Yeah. Paul, I think, is the other way. I think Paul always dreamed he could be, you know, Robert Plant. And we've talked about this. Kiss exists in its own self-contained context you mm-hmm. k- kiss isn't led zeppelin it isn't even aerosmith no. and it can't even be rightfully compared to it it's a whole different thing but we whatever <laughs> I'll, i won't get into that well i was gonna ask since they kind of uh see it more in that aspect in this time period do you think they saw the writing on the wall as far as like, what a reunion could do absolutely but i i don't i don't know that they're ready to go that far yet Right. Well, I, th- I to lead into what Cap's saying, when we talk about the very first uh, actual official convention, I I, th- I think Cap's on to something. I think from that first show, they knew something was up. Well, absolutely. But I don't, they, you know, they have to approach that. Obviously, they're thinking long term. Mm-hmm. Right. They know eventually it's going to happen. They have to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it's an inevitability. Because they've already been playing nice with Ace, getting on stage with him once or twice. Because there was that one show where Gene and Paul got up to that sing was like, in like That was in 87. After that, things kind of got really sour between it did, them. yeah. Now, I don't know if this is true, but I remember hearing about this with the uh, Kiss My Ass tribute record about there being a note to Ace and Peter saying, hey, guys, we couldn't have done this without you in so many words. Well, that's, yeah. you know, but that's really kind of a... I think that also helps. Say it's more of a hand, handshake and a sham. And, and right. trying to make themselves look kind of cool to the fans too. Yeah. Um, in May of 1985, Alex Coletti, who's the producer of MTV Unplugged, had a meeting with Tim Rosner, who was the, one of the coordinators for the convention tour and tour in Australia. I guess he was their tour manager. I don't know if he was their tour manager at this point. I know mm-hmm. he would become tour manager. Um, but I don't know that this was anything formal, but Rosner had worked that Australian tour and passed Coletti a tape of it. And Coletti, in turn, 
began greasing the wheels for an episode of Unplugged with Kiss. Mm-hmm. He's met with all kinds of resistance initially, but he's a Kiss fan, apparently. Big time. So he's pushing. Now, this is in May of 95, so when this stuff starts rolling, you know, I'm, it's hard to figure out exactly what the timeline is on this. Um, but Kiss is bringing this convention tour to the U.S., and the, 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 uh, the big payoff is a two-hour acoustic performance from from what i understood um so far everything you says correct you know coletti got that you know early tape from the australia stuff i think coletti was at the june uh 16th show in california we'll we'll get we'll get to that but go ahead say what you're gonna say well yeah i was just gonna say i think he was actually at that show saw the performance and discussed with them afterward doing the show the tv show it's not then it's not but we'll get there okay uh the convention features, just to be clear, it's like a traveling museum of costumes, instruments, memorabilia, vendors. You know, uh, but they, the, of course, vendors. They're like um, hotels and stuff like that. A tribute act in full costume. They've got video screens displaying classic Kiss footage. All of this is, you know, largely centered around the makeup era. Yes. And, and then of interesting course, little things uh, that I noticed watching, because sometimes on YouTube you can only find like you know just the Kiss performance, but then there's like some three hour long videos you can find on YouTube of these conventions where people are actually filming the other things that were happening, mm-hmm. and like Bruce Kulick was having like a guitar play along teaching yeah, segment. Yeah, they, they, Eric and Bruce would do guitar clinics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Eric, Eric was doing like this mashup on drums with like a bunch of guitar riffs, and it was. And the thing is, is say what you want about Eric in Kiss, he's actually an entertaining drummer to watch. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. he, he has the performance down. Right. His skill, that's neither here nor there. He's a fun drummer to watch. So that was actually pretty smart, putting him front and center, showing off as a drummer. It was entertaining. Well, of course, like we said, this this culminates with the end of the day. Kiss does a two-hour acoustic set, often composed of requests. And I guess they do a Q&A session. Yeah. I don't know if that is before or after they play. It's a little bit before, and they kind of take a couple questions in between. Uh, one of the big things, though, that they were doing with this is during certain songs, specifically uh, Heaven's on Fire and I Love It Loud, they would get audience members to sing the songs. Weird. Now, what's y'all's opinion on that? I mean... I mean, well, here, let's. Uh, uh, this, is, this will speak to it a little bit because uh, it should be noted that... The tickets have been priced at a hefty, for the time, $100. $100. That was a considered yeah. a giant, giant ticket price back then. Which, But the rationale was it gave the event a sense of elite exclusivity while limiting the potential rush of fans that would totally overwhelm the event. That prevents it from being overwhelmed. Right. So it kind of acts as a safeguard as much as anything else. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a smart move. Yeah, to you know, to keep it at a manageable. Oh yeah, at a manageable especially because these days you see all these conventions that get over. What well, not kiss related even, but just different conventions that get overrun and promoters were not ready for yeah. it. No. They they avoided that. You probably and still got to pay hotel staff and, and all. Oh, helps, absolutely. Yeah, it helps offset the costs and it sure's I guess a tidy profit. Um, but to your answer, how do I feel about people getting on stage for a hundred bucks? I mean, you know, I'm like, you're goddamn right. You're going to get on stage. You know? <laughs> so I, I mean, this it, may just make me feel a, or sound elitist or whatever, but 
I don't know. To me, there's a line between the stage and the audience. Yeah, I and agree. It's, and it's okay to breach that every so often, but like if you're just handing a microphone over to a guy to sing a whole song and the big band has now become your backing band, it feels like it cheapens the experience of a live show. It yeah, kind of turns it into, I, that's that great, we're the same as you. Right, Where in reality, you got to keep a little bit of the mystique of we're the same as you, but we're here for a reason. Yeah, but I, I think the idea here is, especially in this era where, again, this grunge thing is kind of made it like you know there is less of a delineation between the audience and the stage yeah this allows them to kind of let that guard down a little bit and again in this an environment i can see it you know it's not something yeah i don't want to see like you know some drunken bozo jump on stage and be like not that's different i think that's different than this and i I know it's probably what didn't happen and i've seen some of that stuff like the little girl got up and sang let's put the x in sex oh my god really bizarre yeah (laughs) yeah i ran across that show but i didn't know exactly which show that was because they always talk about it in any of these retrospective documentaries they always bring up that girl and her brother that played do you love me yeah and it's like i didn't know what show that was and i just ran across it by chance just listening to these and you hear eric say where's that kid where's that kid and so it was eric's idea to bring the kid up to play the drums and then you hear kind of like you know the family talking and like people kind of talking off mic a little bit and then you hear all of a sudden paul's kicking and I'm like, oh, this is. I didn't know it's I was watching cringy. this show. It's. So, I mean, it's it's like that line between cringy and cute. I mean, but you know, an eight year old singing those lyrics is a little bizarre. But it, it you know, what whatever. it kind of gave me. They were listening me? to Howard Stern that morning. Well, because you've got the mom and dad up there like singing and clapping, yeah. or like smiling yeah, and like, clapping along. Hey. Like, look at my girl go. You know what it kind of gave me? Mm. It gave me those uh, those child beauty pageant vibes, <laughs> where it's just like. This is a little weird. Well, <laughs> we're getting ahead of ourselves. The, yes, tour, the tour starts, I guess there's a press conference on June 16th, and they do a short performance of that. But the yeah. tour itself, the first convention date was June 17th in Burbank, California. And in the buildup to the event, Peter Chris contacted Gene and asked if it was okay to attend because he wanted to bring his daughter and yeah. kind of show her what he had been a part of and why it had been important because she was probably, you know, obviously she was too young to have known any of it. Right. And even um, with, uh, in the aspect with Peter, you know, of course we didn't get into, you know, the Ace and Peter's trials and tribulations through the 80s. But like by this point, Peter was kind of on the other side of it. You know, he was kind of in his retrospective phase. He had gotten some of his personal demons figured out, relationships sorted, and even this was actually him kind of rekindling things with his daughter again. So it was a very tender and kind of genuine moment from Peter where he's like, I really just kind of want to be part of things. So I thought that was really sweet. Well, they, they, in turn, the band... uh not only said, yeah, come along, they invited them to join them for a couple of songs during their set. Yeah. However, it's not widely known, yet true, he quietly actually had met with them several days prior to the event to rehearse. And I think he still fucked it up, but that's okay. Yeah. It was it was fucking Peter. That was a big deal, you know. Kind of it was a good way to kick it off because that kind of a buzz would feed into all the other shows. You never knew who might show up. Of course, no one ever does, but... Right. Well, the thing is... is that <laughs> sure, that, it didn't hurt. That's no. the moment I say that at least Gene realized there is a market for the reunion. And you know why? Go rewatch that video. As soon as Peter starts that 
first verse of Hard Luck Woman. He says, if never I met you. At that point, Gene looks to the audience and you see him slowly grin. And it's a different grin. It's not like him, you know, just playing to the audience. That's his Oh shit! You see dollar signs in his yes, eyes. Yes, <laughs> you literally see him calculating in his mind, being like, "Oh shit! I knew it. This <laughs> really could be something." <laughs> well, um, let's look at some of these other dates. Two dates are canceled: uh, July first in Houston, and July fourth in New Orleans were both canceled, with the provision that the tickets sold for either one of those dates would be honored in Dallas, which I think was on the second or third. You know what? I didn't even write that date down. But what what that seems to say is the turnouts for these things are a little anemic on some of them. Because I know the turnouts for some were as little as 300. Yeah. Some of them, but some of them are pretty hefty too. Yeah. Well, probably certain markets. Absolutely. But I mean, that's still kind of a, I feel really kind of pissed off. I've, I've shelled out a hundred bucks to go see him in new Orleans. And now I'm going to have to drive four or five hours out to Dallas to go see it. Yeah. Now, you know, obviously I'd still have gone, but you know, but that says the Dallas show was weak on sales in Houston, they just comboed basically three shows into one. I mean, it's a big undertaking, though, because they're doing this them all by themselves yeah, with Tommy, they've, right? they've assumed the risk. Yeah. But then, like, on but, July 9th in Nashville, they had uh, roughly 1,000 in attendance. Yeah. And so on, that's, that's pretty decent. On July 8th in Atlanta, they made an appearance on Good Morning America to help promote it, which was kind of a, a big deal that they were able to get that. Yeah. July 12th, they appear on the KSHE radio uh, in St. Louis, K- the KS I said they the K S H E K S H E radio. I think it's pronounced. I think they say K S H E. We K S H E. We live on the on the eastern half of the Mississippi, so everything's W here. Yes, but out there everything's K. Uh, anyway, that's the same station that had sponsored the kissing contest as part of the promotion for the first. Oh. No way. As well as what they called the Kite Festival in 1974, where the band performed to what may still be their largest audience ever. <laughs> How many? They estimate there was 140,000 people at the event. That's There's footage of that they're playing outdoors in the in daylight. And uh, you can find that stuff. It's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting thing to see. Uh, but July 22nd, is when Alex Coletti attends. I think that's okay. a, the Detroit date for the official tour. Yes. And this has been a full well, year July now. July 22nd. Yeah, a full yeah. year after Kiss raided the unofficial one. Um, but it's This was also the same show with the X and Sex and Do You Love Me. Okay. Well, it's unclear to me at this point if a deal had been made or if, he, if it is finalized at this gig for the MTV Unplugged. But July 22nd, it's awfully close to the August 9th taping. So if it hadn't been ironed out by now, I, I can't see it that it wouldn't have been finished by this point. I mean, this is a, this is kind of a quick turnaround. Oh mm-hmm. yeah. Um, but either way, it does seal the deal for the band to do unplugged. Um, July 30th, they do the Rosalind ballroom in New York city. Ace and Peter are invited to perform, but they're touring oddly enough together. Bad the Boys, Boys Rock, Tour. The Bad Boys of Rock Tour. Corniest. Yeah. <laughs> My mother, Rebecca, actually saw him on that tour. Bad um, Boys of Rock, brought to you by Bud Light. Conan O'Brien sends his co-host over to 
cover the event in comical fashion, which airs on August 4th with the band as a musical guest. I remember watching that when it aired. Yeah, I sent that in. I sent that in mm-hmm. the uh, uh, group chat on our uh, Facebook because I had not seen the clip because it was Andy Richter that yeah, was uh, yeah, doing Richter. it. Yeah. I'd not seen Andy's clip. I'd seen them performing on Conan, but I'd just not seen that part of the clip. And that's why I sent yeah. it. Russ is a mute response. I watched that the night it aired. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you. So, so actually, since you saw that night air, what was your thoughts on it because watching it today i was kind of laughing it was pretty funny but and knowing that andy is a kiss fan of course he went into it you know a bit earnest but he still had no problem poking at fans that were like super dressed up because of course he still had to make it comical what was your feelings on that because i know that kiss was still a very personal thing for people around that era because they had to deal with a lot of bullshit being a fan and now you're seeing Kiss playing into something that might be at least misconstrued as poking at them again. Did that get the feeling watching it? A little bit. You know, I, I didn't watch it when you sent it to me. I remember it well enough that it was cringy. <laughs> uh, there was the funny, the, the, the things I remember, he made a funny joke. He looks at like Paul's asylum outfit and goes, Oh, apparently there's an uh, exhibit here for Doug Henning fans. Yes. Hmm. It was the ma- magician back yeah. in the day. And then there's a guy who talks about, Oh, Paul, he's my guy. It's like they, they, ner- they, they interviewed the nerdiest, cringiest fans. I know yeah, they picked the best moments, <laughs> you know, and, and I understand it. They're, they're playing it for comical effect. You know, that's, but that speaks a little bit to Kiss's bravery. They've never been afraid to take it on the chin. And, you know, even back in the 70s. Right. Well, I mean, and taking know- it on the chin is one thing, but they're taking it on the chin of something that was not meant to be taken on the chin. Does that make sense? Yeah. But like, like if they, like- it look good, there's no such thing as bad press. Yeah. That's how they're seeing this. And they get to perform. They perform on the show. Yeah. So, you know, they can probably feel like, okay, but we're still going to come out here and do a strong performance that undone, you know, it shows we have a sense of humor about ourselves. And it also shows that we're, we're still stronger than, than the most of the bands out there. Yeah. Yeah. And the jokes they're showing and ever. Um, So that goes to August 9th. Yes. Well, I was going to say August 5th, through the 8th, they're having uh, the rehearsal. Actually, no. So, yeah, all, all the way to the 9th, uh, they're even having rehearsals that afternoon. Is that at SIR? Yes. Yeah. And uh, the really cool thing about it is, by this point, Tommy Thayer had kind of gotten moved to filmographer. And he and one of his buddies filmed the Everything, entire yeah. thing. And I, so much of it is on YouTube. There's like a five-hour video of this on oh, YouTube. Multiple days of it. And I man... Negative interest in watching I, I tried. I gave it about 30 minutes just yeah. for out of curiosity. I was like, I can't do five hours of this. See, <laughs> I love it. And I, I didn't do the whole five hours, but I've watched different pieces of it in long successions throughout the years. My favorite thing is they're testing out a whole bunch of guitars on day yes. one to kind of figure out the right tone and sound, which is makes sense. They're going to be doing a TV performance. It's They don't play with acoustics a lot. They've had years to figure out their live stage sound. They need to figure out the right guitars for this. So Gene's cycling through six or seven different basses. Paul has about maybe 10 or 15 guitars to pick from. Bruce has about 10. And Paul's finally found the guitar he likes, and he's just walking around, kind of getting used to it, warming up some. And he notices the camera and starts talking in a Barney voice and just starts going, 
if you want to entertain the troops, you got to make sure and cater to the kids. They're going to be the future. Like this. And just starts going, hi there, baby bop. <laughs> Let's sing a song. Seeing Paul doing a Barney voice, because you know he's got a kid at this point, so he's already in dad mode. Seeing mm-hmm. Paul in early dad mode is honestly really funny. <laughs> I like that a lot. Meanwhile, Jane's making fun of dead celebrities. <laughs> yes, yes. He's, Gene's making all the jokes that, to quote him, can't say that these days. Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's honestly a really interesting look into the process. And I know y'all have zero interest in it, but I guess me also being like budding filmographer and like liking the process of things. Mm-hmm. I liked just kind of being the fly on the wall, seeing it is cool that seeing that's the way everyone then, interacts with each right. other, who talks to who, who hangs out in what areas, and you kind of start getting a feel of Gene's camp and the people that hang around Paul, who talks to Eric, who talks to Bruce. Well, it's what, very interesting. Well, they obviously they're they're preparing for this thing, and they they're going to rehearse with Peter and Ace. Now I've read up on uh, how difficult Ace was already being. It wasn't Ace. Right, because I was hearing this from Paul and Gene on this stuff, Well, well, even Paul and Gene admit that Ace wasn't really being a problem. It was Ace and Peter were both being represented by the same lawyer. No, it wasn't a lawyer. It was a guy named George Suet. Yeah, yeah, manager. George Suet had been their tour manager, was Kiss's tour manager in 1979 and 1980. And he went on to become manager... At some point, for both Peter and Ace. Yeah. And apparently George. And George seems to think that he holds all the cards here. Because none of this can happen without their participation. He's kind of right to a degree, but I don't think he realizes there is a point where Gene and Paul are going to be like... Yeah, it's just not worth it. Yeah. You know, and then they're going to walk away with nothing. And it happened. That happened for like three hours on the zero hour. Oh, okay. For literally for a minute, they was went. It, was never that mind. Uh, at this point? Uh, not at this point. They, at this point, everyone's playing along. There was a moment after practices and I'm, everything. I'm saying at this point, in the, is, is it during the unplug cycle that this happens? Yes. Okay. Yes, during the unplug cycle. So they have already gotten together with Ace and Peter at SIR. Tommy's kind of, you know, gotten everything together along with Coletti. Uh, and then they arrive at the studio that they're going to be filming the special. And they get a phone call saying that Ace and Peter are no longer going to be part of it. See, I didn't catch this. I didn't. Yeah, wait, wait, that, mm-hmm. that Ace and Peter were no longer going to be doing it. And Coletti talks about this. Uh, he does a little bit of a forward before the uh, Kissology video. Yeah. And uh, he, this is where I'm kind of pulling that story from, where it's like he had put he 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 kind of lays it out. He goes, "I put a lot of time and effort into making the stage look cool." You know, Gene and Paul were very receptive to my ideas. They really treated me like an equal. You know, I had a great experience, and you know, we're doing sound check at the studio, and I'm playing Ace's guitar, and we're running through 2000 Man, and he's like. I'm glad I've got the video because something that should have been so huge and monumental for me, I'm sound checking with Kiss, but all I can think about is I'm out of a job tomorrow. Well, that was part of the selling point, I think, for MTV was that to do the unplugged, so for that Ace minute, and Peter had to be a part of it. Yeah. yeah. So they had full like negotiations Whoa, had hey. completely, you know, backfired. Technical, technical so malfunction. They tried to jump and kill Russ. Yeah. <laughs> so but for a minute on that zero hour, he genuinely thought that they were not gonna be part of it. And he was like, Oh shit. After this, my job's done. 
Yeah, well, but that probably like, wasn't untrue. Right? It wasn't. So it's like, it is just really fascinating, but, though, that like, know, even on the day, and, they did not know if it was going to happen. And, and it's interesting to note that because the fact that for this to have even become a deal, Ace and Peter had to be involved, just goes to show how Titanic that was, even in the perception of MTV, who were never kind to kiss. No. Uh, and, and, you know... Therefore, to a layman's perspective, a mainstream public perspective, and no one gives a shit about Kiss Unplugged without Ace and Peter. Well, and that's for a it, while. MTV didn't even give a shit about Kiss Unplugged. Period. Right. They were just yeah. like, "What do you mean this band doing uh, right. an unplugged?" Well, like but, you said, it was a fan that. But was they saw the out. potential of the, that, and they saw that as a, of the the ratings potential. That's what they're looking at. The bottom line is: this going to draw ratings? Is this going to benefit us for ad revenue? That's all. That's all any television is. It and, doesn't matter what you're watching. The the nightly news is all steered towards ad revenue. Mm-hmm. And not to jump too far ahead, but I think they were correct because isn't the Kiss Unplugged either the best or second best selling Unplugged series? Like it was neck and neck with Nirvana. I, I don't I've heard know. second. Yeah. 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 Would, so would, yeah, so could, they were right. It, yeah. it hit really big because they did a lot of those Unplugged sessions during that time. Basically what? any major grunge artist was doing one. I mean, it was everybody from Nirvana to Neil Young too. Yeah. Well, they were less frequent at this point than they had been. But, um, so what, obviously they figured out whatever they had yeah. to figure out. I, I mean, it yeah, kind of makes it always seem gets like very to me, blurry. I, it just seems yeah. like to me, that's just George Sewitt running a bullshit play. Well, then I hear uh, stories of Gene, how Gene himself, like he says this in his book about how he was on the phone with George a lot, trying to get Ace and keep Ace on board or ready to pull the plug on Ace in any moment too, yeah. with their conversations. Well, I mean... Well, that that leads more into the reunion. Oh, okay. That's a lot more into the reunion. During this point, it was just a a money thing. I don't know if they're going to do it because of scheduling, quote unquote. It, it was a whole big mess. It, the the getting ready to even just be like screw this was after these shows and getting ready for the reunion. Okay. Well, let's talk about the show itself. Yes. Uh, obviously, they work out whatever kinks and. It pulls off, and uh, I think all of these songs are done exceptionally well. I agree. I think uh, this is... Especially considering that the, this material doesn't necessarily lend itself to acoustic renditions. It's, it you know, you can see there's a little awkwardness to it to a degree, but, um, and this really is a, speaks highly, I think, of Bruce's ability as a musician. You know, lead, rock and roll lead guitar is meant to be played through an overdriven amp on yeah. an electric string, right? And, yeah. you know, so you've got to figure out a way around that. It doesn't really work. It's not like and classical they didn't, And they guitar. didn't really cheat either. They really stuck with pretty much full acoustic. And Bruce is playing all the ace leads, you know, more, well, you know, not verbatim, but pretty well, pretty faithfully. Well, that would be my only problem with this whole thing has less to do with Kiss than it does the unplugged floor, f- format floor mat. Yeah. <laughs> format. Which, by the way, the floor mat, huge <laughs> blown uh, The stage up. is painted like rock and roll over. I mean, that's this. I mean, the, everything is centered around makeup era Kiss here. They've they, got the figures up with only, the yes. costumes. The, uh, in, in the final set list, there's only two non-makeup era songs played out of what fifteen. I have I have a really nerdy fact. I know that they played other stuff. Not even that. 
Have you noticed that they pick two songs from every album? Only two. <laughs> I haven't thought of this. They don't do more than two songs from every non-makeup album. Now, is this including the uh, outtakes? No, I'm talking about the MTV Unplugged released record. Okay. So you've got like, Coming Home, what's the other Hotter Than Hell song they picked? Going Blind. There you go. They only picked two from every single record. They never they never exceeded more than two songs per record. Did they, but do they play two off of every record? No. Well, you got Do You Love Me and um, Beth. Beth. Yeah, yeah. You've got uh, Plaster Caster and 2000. No, not 2000, man. Um, mm, Plaster and From Love Gun. That would be the single. Hmm. But I just I found it interesting because you see a lot of the live shows are like Destroyer heavy. Wait, they don't do Hard Luck Woman like even on an outtake like on YouTube. It's it's an outtake. Okay, yes. I'm 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 just going by the MTV Unplugged record. Well, um, <laughs> we got into the minutia there. Yeah, but. I know. But <laughs> and and the interesting thing about the set list they pick here, they want they they kind of orchestrate it, and make it sound like you know we just kind of picked the coolest songs you know and made the set. Even at the early convention tours. Almost every set opened with coming home. Well, that I think they—that's one thing they really had to their benefit going into this thing was they had already been playing the whole previous month or two months, really. Yeah, and uh, doing this acoustic set every night or an acoustic set every night. They so they knew in. which ones were dialed in and which ones they could do really well. Um, you know, it, it provides them a very solid base to build off of, and so this is a home run. Oh you yeah, know? and it's perhaps the only home run of the entire non-makeup era. <laughs> I mean, un, un, where you can absolutely say they knocked this one out of the park. Even as as a non-fan, you can watch it and go, well, "Damn, that's actually pretty goddamn and good." And Eric yeah. served the songs. And, I don't think yeah. Eric overplayed. Uh, well, and, and Bruce did too. Mm-hmm. This is the only non-makeup Eric Kiss concert I've watched over and over and over again. This is the only one. Yeah, this is the only one I've ever. I had a good time listening to this for the first time in forever. Well, I think uh, the easiest thing to probably go about would be since we really feel like this is a solid record and we discussed off mic there's really no need to go track by track uh first off what would be your least favorite rendition hmm. my least favorite since, well, since it's a pretty solid record all okay. around we've got a lot of positives my least favorite would just be because of the of the source material would be domino right yeah but i feel like and i think okay. that's like the that's the that's the slimiest point and you know and I, I guess that's why Gene they he does the the bitch bend over I forget my name which is a dumb fucking line. <laughs> and you know at the end he's like oh I'm sorry like yeah no you're not it's you know it, you know, we're sorry we're sorry you had to play that goddamn song because we would have rather heard some well, other okay so you know why place. he actually said I'm sorry uh, okay so <laughs> I just assumed it was because I know they did multiple takes of all of this now, that's okay not so there, there's known. three versions of MTV unplugged out in the world mm-hmm. there's the official original version they did a VHS tape along with the CD mm-hmm. and then there's a second version that's on the kissology um, series they did that included a couple more songs mm-hmm. there's a full unedited version I don't know if it's on YouTube anymore but at one point it was and I have the audio boot leg the reason gene says i'm sorry at the end of that 
they had to play that song five times. Oh. Yeah, Gene kept messing up. <laughs> yes, he kept messing up, or like, the, or like he couldn't hear things, and he'd stop like midway through. So they kept one mess up. Well, that's weird the that they they, they would have that they even would have aired it. Then it would. It, it, I, don't I know. think it uh, plays into it because at one point they get halfway through the set and start over. Yeah, like they get a couple songs in, and you even hear Paul say, "You know what? That's so good." Let's try that all again. We'll be right back. Well, and then they walk back out on stage and start over with coming home. Right. So it's like they, they well, did think, a lot. I think they intend. I, I think that was probably formatted that way to a certain degree. Like, let's get multiple takes and we'll we'll puzzle together a show out of it. I thought. But, I, I, I assume that was probably true of every episode that was ever taped of that show. With right. every All we band. really know is the Kiss Minutia. But the only one we know is the Kiss one. Um, uh, also, another interesting note, and props to them, even though they recorded a lot of takes, the official unplugged release has very little overdubs. It's yeah, genuine it's, performance. Dude, yeah, well, that, but again, that's because they were able to get so many takes. So many takes. Um, My least favorite was actually Do You Love Me? I was going to say, that's probably mine, too. It, it, to me... It, so I you know I contrast your domino saying it works better as an acoustic song. Well, um, do you love me? Does not work better as an acoustic I, 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 song. Although the guitar part in the center, in the middle of it, kind of works though. That's yeah. very nice. And that's, that's very it's, nice. It's, and and that was something I noticed on Going Blind because and correct me if I'm wrong and maybe I'm just hearing it wrong on the electric version. He's picking out notes on the course yes. on the chords. Throughout the song, yes, you know, yeah, it's like it's not just strummed. Whereas here, they're just strumming mm-hmm. all six strings, which I thought that was a little unusual that they wouldn't use. I mean, it, it lends itself dynamic. to that original dynamic. It would it would even be more pronounced on a clean acoustic. Whereas liked- they do that in "Do You Love Me," and they added when they got to the reunion, they added this coda to "Do You Love Me." Yes, that mm-hmm. I think, from what I understand, was actually recorded for the album, but I've never ever heard I've it. Heard that rumor too, and I was kind of never think heard it. There was a little bit of a swell of people kind of going, "Is that going to be part of that Destroyer resurrected?" Yeah, it was <laughs> never showed no. up. So I've never heard it but you know and i would think that that would have lent itself to that acoustic version as well and they you're right you're it. right um yeah those are all little things you can nitpick but i think all of this is still overall it's still a fantastic really stellar i i, I think they you know they they chose a pretty good set list. I was cool to see them do stuff like uh, Sure Know Something. I love that as an acoustic song. I think that uh, World Without Heroes, it was a, it was cool to see them actually embrace the Elder in a way. And, and do it earnestly. And do it good. Uh, Gene doing See You Tonight mm-hmm. from his solo album, that just, you know. That, it's a treat getting to see Paul play the song. And, 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 but, it, you know, and it also shows their Beatle influence, which is so heavy and undeniable and so and yet and it works so much overlooked song. on their whole thing. And it's interesting that they did a Gene Simmons solo song, but they didn't do a Paul solo song. Yeah. Because imagine, know. like, a Wouldn't You Like to Know Me. Yeah, you could have done quite a few Paul songs. So, um, Especially because, like, something we hadn't mentioned, best Paul vocal performance since the seventies. I think this is Paul on at record. his pro- well, at least on record. Uh, yeah, yeah. He, uh, you know, he he's obviously very into himself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, but, but the thing is, but it you works know, though. But, I think yeah, this is yeah. some of his strongest well, vocals he we've gets, heard in he years. He gets a showcase on "I Still Love You." I was going to say at the very end, yeah. he does the and, and we can be flex. jaded, but let's take a step back. 
that's goddamn impressive oh, yeah. that he oh, holds yeah. that note that strong. Because yeah. someone can hold a note for a long time, but it can be like a and, uh, and it comes out of nowhere in a way because it's kind of like he builds up to that point and then it's just like boom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and even his you know I still well, well, yeah. even that little thing he does at the end. Everything's but he doesn't on, do it. He doesn't do it too long, and it's all on key. Yeah, and it works. Yeah, so and the, uh, yeah, the harmonies all through the whole thing. Oh the my harmonies God. are on. They've got it. They're they're locked in mm-hmm. you know and and, and and like you said it wasn't really overdubbed they didn't have time or room to do that so no. you know um the only thing else that you could say again this is part of the mtv format uh, it's clear that gene is playing through some sort of overdriven amplifier yeah his yeah. bass is over well that's what it sounded like it sounds the fucking tour. killer yeah, to be does. fair i mean it's gene it simmons really good you know, especially on like sure knows something not acoustic that's what fattens up the whole like acoustic show dynamic too well i mean and bruce is kind of cheating a little bit with that style acoustic he had because it kind of it kind of breaks a little bit more on the acoustic to get more bend out of it i I mean all that's fair i for what it is it's still really really good and then you get they got some members of the family here yeah yeah, they ain't talking about mom and dad (laughs) they talking about Peter, Chris, and Ace Fraley. And out come Lumbering, Ace, and Peter. It's almost anticlimactic in a weird way. <laughs> they're just like, hey, guys. Like, they just sort of come out and it's like, hey. <laughs> One of the you best know? things, though, and, and it, it, this is on the completely unedited version. It's not on the Kissology version. Um, they all get out on stage. Ace is sitting there getting comfortable. You know, the crowd, Ace, 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 Ace. He's laughing and, you know, Paul, you know, Ace Fraley. You know, so they're all getting ready to start in 2000, man. Ace leans into the microphone and goes, what do you call a lesbian in Alaska? Oh, my God. A Klondike. <laughs> get him off, get him off, get him off, get him off. Welcome back, that, Ace. That's not going to make air. No. <laughs> Wrote a commercial. Wrote a commercial. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, Damn welcome man. back, Ace. Yeah. yeah, great. Thanks for offending half the world, man. Gene's just in the back going. Yeah. No, you know Gene's laughing at that one. <laughs> But they make mention of that in the books. They're like, an Ace took no time at all to get into the microphone and make it about him. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, this whole thing was really set up for him and Peter. I mean, let's just face it. At the end of the day, all of this was so they would get out and do their two songs. And what do you think of those? I think they're great. They're solid. I mean. I'm surprised. I was listening to it again last night. I'm surprised that Ace's lead was as strong as it was. On Beth, too. Yeah, especially on Beth. That arrangement of Beth was really excellent. It's better than what they would have done. It, which would have been... Yeah, so when uh, they were doing the rehearsals for Beth, Peter brings in oh, yeah, uh, this those, wooden box. Yeah, that box. What do they call that thing? It's Oh, one of those cajones? Co- yes. yes. <laughs> he brings that in because apparently it was a gift that Gene gave him a few years prior, which also kind of... That gets mentioned a few times, but let's stop and think about that a second. Gene gave Peter a gift a few years prior, even before all this happened. So as much as they want to talk about not think, liking each other, I think, at least Gene is think, making a point to I think reach out. Gene has always had a soft spot in his heart for Peter mm-hmm. for whatever reason. You know, this would extends all the way, I think, even to, to today. Uh, Paul has very plainly expressed he does not like Peter. Yeah. You know, he he's cordial to him, 
but he doesn't, you know, he's said flat out, I just don't like the guy. Yeah. I can get it. Whereas I think everything that Paul hates about Peter, I think Gene has always found endearing about Peter. Even the whininess, the complaining, everything else. I think, you know, it's almost like Peter's older, but, and Peter's always said the dynamic is that Gene's always been the older brother, yeah. even though mm-hmm. Peter himself is older. And I think they were probably the closest of, even more closer probably than Ace and Peter. It, and a lot of people don't probably see that, but I, well, Ace looking and Peter at were it from the outside, right. But, but as that far as an interpersonal relationship as friends, I think Gene was closest to Peter out of all of them. And even, I think they even, even make Paul. mention of that in like the second coming tape or something when it's like showing some of the backstage stuff because Peter and Gene are sharing backstage space while Ace and Paul share backstage space. And I think they even make mention of that where like Ace and Paul got along because Ace would be quiet and Paul liked the quiet, but like mm-hmm. Peter and Gene would gab uh, like as if they were <laughs> like think, women yeah, getting their hair done. Their, I think they had similar sense of humor and, and what have you. Um, but especially when it came to taste of music because Gene had a large appreciation for that older music and Peter was such a jazz head that right. he could, they could talk about that all day long. Yeah. Um, so he does Beth and it's, I guess they did like three takes of that. Two. Yeah. Two. So that wasn't, and it was, you know, they were doing multiple takes of everything and they went with the, uh, the second take and then they bring back Bruce and Eric. Eric. Now, it would seem that, you know, to offset the idea that there could possibly be a reunion, that they would have left Bruce and Eric on stage through the whole thing. It would make sense in a lot of ways, but I would assume, and I'm, you know, I can only assume that that, again, was part of the contractual obligation. It was that there has to be at least two songs with just those four. Well, I mean, if you think about it from a, not but, even from a marketing sense, but think about it like a movie or, you know, stuff like I, I, that. I'm not saying I disagree. It's such an epic ending it where it's like, oh shit, everyone's coming out now? It's oh like, man, this is cool. Yeah, or, but that isn't what happens. When or, he says everyone's coming out now, it's... Well, okay. I have, I know what you're going to bring up. I have listened to that part over and over. So what, what happens, Paul goes, we're bringing everyone out. And the crowd cheers for a second, and then you hear what sounds like booze. You hear, ooh, ooh, and you even hear Ace get on the microphone and go, hey, yeah. these guys are part of the family, no, this too. This is all edited yeah. out. Of it's the, all edited out. Yeah. I honestly believe. You think they're chanting Bruce. I've heard it live before, and it does sound like booze. When they're saying, bruise, bruise, it kind of sounds like it. Maybe. So I, I'm on the fence if they were genuinely booing or if they were yelling Bruce, Bruce like they did Ace. Bruce felt like they were booing. He still feels. Oh, he does. Yeah. Okay, that's a rough moment because like the fans have their moment of like the original guys. Now, I can see being confused. That, mm-hmm. And that's why I said I'm not speaking definitively, but like to my ears, I'm still on the fence. But you're saying? Well, I was just saying like uh, they got rid. They put uh, Bruce and Eric off stage. And the fans finally have this moment of like their band together right. on stage playing these You're songs. Right. The band. The band. And then Bruce and Eric come out and all the fans are like, no, 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 no. We got our band back. Exactly. We got my band back. That's exactly it. It felt like that watching it. Yeah. I can remember watching it going, ah, I, want, I want more of that. Yes. You know? Although I do have to say, man. Can we get four songs at least? Yeah. <laughs> it was really cool seeing everyone play in Nothing to Lose and Rock and Roll All Night. And 
when you're listening to the audio, sometimes it's kind of hard to separate out who's playing what parts on the drums. But when you're listening to the convention tapes, Eric uh, actually always stopped during the before the baby please don't refuse that little guitar riff where uh, Peter usually does the little tom the, rolls. Yeah, he did the, Eric always stopped during right. the convention tours. So hearing Peter playing like his classic little fills right, and everything right. else. And then interesting dynamic. Eric sings the song and not Gene. So you've got the two drummers yeah, yeah. singing the got, song. Yeah. That, so that's I, even kind of cool. I had not ever really thought of that until I listened to it again this just this in preparation for this. And I was like, well, here you've got the impossible, you know, the drummer that was and the drummer that is and then the drummer that shall... <laughs> you know. but it, it, and you know, singer has a was, cool, cool voice oh, yeah, i think he's saying that oh really yeah well. absolutely he does absolutely like i said this is a home run all the way around you know and, and rock and roll all night having ace and peter singing a line that was kind of that was different mm-hmm. i felt that was a little unnecessary but it was it would have been cool if they were cool able to moment. sneak in paul singing a line that way it, it was been, all four it would have been cool as if they didn't play those two songs straight away and had ace and peter do at least two more songs That's what <laughs> <I would've been. laughs> okay but fan theories what would have been the two more songs that would have been cool for that lineup well, to play Ooh. you know ace had had came in thinking that he was going to do shock, shock me, me and yeah. they weren't able to yeah ace, a, ace admits he said the solo just was too hard to play yeah. on acoustic so it's hard to say i mean what what that's a good question what could they have done could they have done something could they have done new york groove okay well they could have kept hard look woman in the set and had peter sing it instead of paul singing it as the outtake yeah. so there you go you had two yeah. more you know new york groove would seem logic because that was the they tried that, that on hit. the convention tour and it didn't sound okay well, but like wow. paul just kind of like tried singing along but to it maybe yeah, mainline being an acoustic Ooh, song that yeah. would have been an interesting deep cut too yeah, possibly. And then you were given another Peter chance. But, to you sing. know, they also had a very limited window of time to do this. Especially thing. when you're doing every song three and four times. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm saying even to, in, in, in the rehearsal. Oh, lead right, up. right, right. So, but it would have been still kind of cool if they had been able to do at least two more extra songs. But and in, my in opinion, light of what was going to happen, I guess this is a really moot yeah. complaint. And so, in my opinion, at this point, this version of Rock and Roll All Night is the only one I can actually sit and listen to. Like if I hear that drum intro for like a live version or the studio version, it's an easy skip. Kind of this yeah. one though, I'll still kind of sit and listen to because little moments that I like in it, you really hear Gene's bass. Yeah. And so it's like you really kind of follow along that thumpy bass line. The guitars kind of take back seat. So it's almost like a drum and bass groovy version of the song. And I really enjoy that. And honestly, the other song I think benefits the greatest from all of this, and y'all touched on it earlier, is Going Blind. Mm-hmm. I think this version of Going Blind is better than the Hotter Than Hell version. I agree with that. I think this is the definitive version. I've always loved Paul, the I mean, Gene's, version. Gene's vocal is great. It, it, the way the solo flows and even the way they kind of, pl- even though they play steady, when they could have plucked the it's notes. really really good but it's so I, solid it's hard for me to over it's just part of what i love so much about going blind is that lead solo on it it's, 
I he just still plays it, you know. Verb- uh, that, no yeah, but no, you but... can't you can't do it on acoustic. I mean, even if Ace had played the song yeah. on acoustic, it wouldn't have been the same as the record. I just, you know, I that was an early favorite of mine, so it's just hard. For, but I see what you're Fair saying, enough. right? And I'm gl- like I said in the last episode, I believe. Uh, the tribute episode. The tribute album uh, where I said, you know, it's a great song anyway. Yeah. It's, it just stands so well. It's one of their better songs. It's overlooked in their in their canon of music. But And my last little note I have for this record before we move away from it is more or less a question, which is, what was Kiss's biggest hit in the 80s? In the 80s? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Late 80s. Forever. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah, yeah. Not there. They played every time I look at you, so you can't use the excuse, oh, where well, they weren't playing non-makeup songs. They wanted to focus on makeup era. Well, they played Domino. They play every time I look at you. Why didn't they play their biggest hit? It's, that seemed very odd. And it's a song that lent itself perfect to acoustic, and it's the, well, minus the yeah, Eric. It's, like, it, it's still the it, Bruce era. And it had been a successful video on MTV. So that yeah. was, that's that kind of a little, little bit of a head scratcher. Yeah, that is kind of, you know, I hmm. never considered that ever. But then again, I never, ever considered that song. But that's, <laughs> that's just me. On December 15th, um, the band appears on KLOS Radio in L.A. performing acoustic versions of Calling Dr. Love and Hard Luck Woman. This ultimately proves to be the final performance with Bruce Kulick and, to a, to an extent, Eric Singer. Right. And this is the end of the non-makeup era. Yeah. <laughs> I was kidding. Oh, you, you actually missed it. They also do an acapella version of White they, Christmas. Well, I knew that. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't count that. But as far as them playing, and, and I just think it's interesting to note that the end of the makeup era, they're playing, or the end of the non-makeup era, they're playing makeup era songs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I, the, you have to question, there's some, there's some interesting stuff going on because, uh, they are back in the studio working on a new album. Yes, which, they are. Like, because because this yep. is, cause this kind of overlaps. They're, they're doing the MTV Unplugged thing while they're working on this new album. No, the album they didn't. The MTV Unplugged was August 9th. They entered the studio in November. Well, when I say working on, meaning well, writing, writing material, material yeah. sending demos to each other, fleshing true, things true, out. Yeah, and 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 so. Uh, one last little thing about this album. There was a bit of a snag when Mercury kind of prematurely claimed rights to the recording of it, which forced a quickie negotiation with MTV. I don't know if MTV had a deal in place to re- release the Unplugged on, on their own imprint or with another Probably, label. Probably, because that's yeah. what they were doing with all the others. So uh, they had to they had to uh, work out a deal with Mercury, and the album was released on March 12, 1996. And it debuts, I guess it debuts and and peaks at number 15 before it just sort of, like everything else, disappears. But then they released video of this at the same time. And the whole video was very successful. Um, And what's weird, man, is like, I do have vague memories of being like four or five, six years old. I want to say I remember the week that mom bought this CD. Like, I don't think she got it on release date, of course. I think she got it a little bit after the fact. But it's like, I feel like I remember when this CD entered the collection. And it's like, that that's one, probably maybe my earliest Kiss memory without realizing it was Kiss. Yeah. Is oddly enough. So, I think this was actually my first full experience with something brand new from Kiss. Well, this seems like a big success for the for this lineup. And now they're going to go into the studio to record a new album. Yet we've also reached 
a very important fork in the road. Right. And uh, we'll discuss all that on the next episode of No Time to Turn as we start looking at uh, the mid-90s and what is and what was never to be. (laughs) (laughs) This this next episode is going to get real nerdy and real Mm -hmm. (laughs) minutiae. Well, because contracts and negotiations and so many zero hour plans change things. but, But there's, there's still another album. Well, that's what I was saying, but zero-hour plans change those things. Yes, plans are made. Plans will go awry. Yeah. Or or not. Yeah. <laughs> awry for some people. But we'll talk about that on the next episode of No Time to Turn, and hopefully we will see you all again then. Good night! Thank you for listening. Please insert another coin by supporting the show for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash somethinggoodnetwork. 